Well, we are delighted that you are here tonight. Turn in your Bibles, please, to Psalm 53. Psalm 53. I know that most of you probably would not necessarily recall this immediately, but Psalm 53 is almost verbatim of Psalm 14 with just a few differences. And of course, it might be asked, why have two psalms that are virtually synonymous? And perhaps the answer is that Psalm 14 might have been given by King David in a different time in Israel's history, and Psalm 53 might have been used, although under the authorship of David, in latter times in Israel's history. We don't know for certain, but what we do know is that if you were to read Psalm 14 all the way through and then read Psalm 53, you might assume that there's a misprint in your Bible and that uh, the two Psalms uh, are being reduplicated. But it is not so, and there are some differences, and we'll talk about those as we go along. But let's pray and ask the Lord to bless our time together in Psalm 53. Heavenly Father, thank you for the opportunity to bring us together tonight as we open the Word of God and we see the riches that are there. Father, we know that when we read and contemplate Psalm 53, it gives us both encouragement and warning, encouragement that you are the God who delivers and warning in the sense that it is a psalm which carries a very sad but true commentary on the state of mankind. And we pray that you would, through your delivering power, holy God, grant us salvation in Jesus Christ so that we are delivered from that which is described about us in this psalm. We pray that you would bless us now as we attempt to understand and even to live out your word in our daily lives. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Look at Psalm 53 with me, and you follow along as I read. To the choir master, according to Mahalath, a mascal of David. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt doing abominable iniquity. There is none who does good. God looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand who seek after God. They have all fallen away. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Have those who work evil no knowledge? who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon God? There they are in great terror where there is no terror. For God scatters the bones of him who encamps against you. You put them to shame, for God has rejected them. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion." When God restores the fortunes of his people, let Jacob rejoice, let 
Israel be glad. You know, as we were singing a moment ago, that second hymn that we were singing by Don Carson, actually, who wrote the words uh, to this song, it actually is a very fitting introduction to our message tonight from Psalm 53. He talks about what is our first outline point of the evening, and that is the depravity of man from verses 1, 2, and 3. This hymn, this song of Don Carson, what an astonishing mercy and power in accord with his pleasure and will. He created each planet, each flower, every galaxy, microbe, and hill. He suspended this planet in space to the praise of his glorious grace. Listen to verse 2. With despicable self-love and rage, we rebelled and fell under the curse. Yet God did not rip out the page and destroy all who love the perverse. No, he chose us to make a new race to the praise of his glorious grace. That second verse describes us. Now, we would be uh, ashamed to admit it, right? A despicable self-love and rage rebelled and fell under the curse. That's, that's the news about us. That's what's true of us. Coming out of the womb, this is the commentary of our lives. We are sinners through and through. And Psalm 53 begins that way. I'm going to use the very same outline that we use from Psalm 14 because it's virtually a synonymous psalm. And the first outline point is the depravity of man, verses 1 through 3. And one of the doctrines of God's Word, which is so widely despised and yet is so true with regard to man, is the doctrine of total depravity. Total depravity. Now, you might hear that phrase... And you might say, I don't want to hear about that. That's, that's something that isn't pleasant. Well, even though it may not be pleasant, it is still true nonetheless, and it describes the basis of who we are in Adam's fall and those who fell under his curse. This is what the Bible teaches. And Psalm 53 might be one of the most important passages, along with Psalm 14, in our Old Testament that describes the depravity of man. This doctrine of mankind's depravity is also, by the way, as you know, picked up by Paul in Romans 3. Indeed, even the first three verses here would say to us so familiarly, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt, doing abominable iniquity. There is none who does good. God looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all fallen away. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. That may be familiar to you because that's essentially exactly what the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 3. Turn over to Romans chapter 3 in your Bibles, and we'll see that the Apostle Paul, knowing the Old Testament as he does, is using several statements right out of Psalm 53, Psalm 14, and frankly, some others 
here in Romans 3, 9 to 18. He, he quotes, as I said, Psalm 14 and Psalm 15 directly. He will also add further a quotation in Romans 3, 13 from both Psalm 5, 9 and Psalm 140, verse 3. And if that's not enough, he'll also allude in this section in Romans 3 to Jeremiah 5.16 as well. He'll also quote from the Greek translation of the Old Testament in Psalm 10.7. And even in verse 15 of Romans 3, he's going to quote from Proverbs 1.6. And if that's not enough, he's going to quote also from Isaiah chapter 59, verses 7 and 8, and Psalm 36.1. This is a veritable comprehensive statement in Romans 3 about the depravity of mankind where Paul sort of sweeps up all of these statements of the Old Testament, and of course not even all of them, but several of them, to speak of the sad commentary of mankind. Notice what it says in Romans 3, 9, for instance. What then? Are we Jews any better off, that is, better off than the Gentiles? And the answer from Paul is no, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin, as it is written. And that means as it is written in our Old Testaments. Here are all those quotations. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Yes, it's true. What a sad commentary. But, praise God, we who have had the veil lifted from our eyes can say with pain and yet pleasure, this is true of mankind generally that they are depraved, and it is true of me specifically that while depraved, God opened my eyes to the truth and gave me Jesus Christ as a Savior and a Lord from which is the very rescue from my depravity. Isn't it true? Look at verse 19 of Romans 3. Now, we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. What Paul does is he takes this series of sweeping statements from the Old Testament, and yet he begins to unfold in Romans 3 the bad news and then the glorious good news. And the good news is here, verse 21, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, this law that slew me, this law that brought me the knowledge of my sin. Like Paul says in Romans 8, I wouldn't have even known about the sin of coveting unless the law had told me do not covet. 
And he says, although the law and prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation, that is, as a satisfaction by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. Here is the reality. Mankind is depraved. His heart is only evil continually. You say, wait a minute. I mean, is that really true? Is that really true of man? Yes, yes it is. It's true of mankind. Look back at Genesis chapter 6, and you might see something that has escaped your notice. This is, this is what the Bible teaches from the very first portions of our Bibles in Genesis, no less, in the book of beginnings when there was corruption on all the earth. You say, well, there certainly weren't even as many people as we have on the earth now. How could the corruption been, uh, how could that corruption been as bad? Well, look at chapter 6, verse 1. When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. And then notice verse 5 of Genesis 6, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Now, that's an amazing statement. You might say, comparatively speaking, to those who are living on the earth now, probably somewhere between, you know, six and eight billion people, that with the uh, accumulated promulgation of sin, how could it have been only evil continually with the intention of the thoughts of all mankind's heart then and there? But it's true, that's what it says. And, of course, we know that after this statement was made, what is coming that is next in God's timeline? What did he do in response to the evil of mankind's heart? What did he do? He brought the flood. He brought the flood. And look over at Genesis chapter 8. Genesis chapter 8. The flood comes, of course, end of 6, top of 7, into 8, and in chapter 8, when the flood begins to subside, verse 18 says, So Noah went out, and his sons and his wife, and his sons' wives with them, every beast, every creeping thing, and every bird, everything that moves on the earth, went out by families from the ark. So you would assume now that as these eight persons, right, Noah, his wife, his sons and their wives, eight persons were the only ones who survived 
the universal flood upon the earth. So God wiped out as a punishment for the depravity of mankind every single other person on the globe except these eight persons. Now you would assume that those eight persons, even with Noah being called someone who was a righteous man who found favor in the eyes of the Lord, that maybe sin would have been curbed a bit. But of course, we know from our reading it isn't so. Verse 20, then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. That, of course, was, of course, offerings for sin. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. So, did the universal flood stamp out all sin? No. And war, was there more sinning as there were more people who were born onto the earth? Of course. And might we say that uh, potentially we have uh, perfected the art of sinning in our own days? This is, this is the inimitable aspect of man. So that's why we need reminders like Psalm 14 and Psalm 53. We need reminders. Go back in your Bibles to Psalm 53. We need these reminders. You say, well, that's so ghastly and that's so negative and that's, that's something I don't want to think about. It's something that I don't want to acknowledge. Well, it is to our own great pain to acknowledge it, to be sure, but it is also to our own great benefit to continue to recognize the sinfulness of man and even the sinfulness of our own hearts. And Psalm 53 says it loudly and clearly. All these passages that I've been reading make up only really a small sample size of what the Bible teaches regarding the utter sinfulness of mankind. It's Alan Ross who has a wonderful commentary on the Psalms, a wonderful, excellent expository comment, a commentary. And this is what he says about Psalm 53. It is one of the strongest passages in the Bible about the complete corruption of the human race. And here's the first thing it says. Look at verse 1. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. Now, if that isn't a commentary on depravity, I don't know what is. I mean, it just tells us so very clearly that this is the anatomy of the human heart, the foolish heart of mankind. And all the way back in Psalm 14, when we studied it, it's the same thing. The idea of a fool is not just someone who is wayward unlike others who are not wayward. The fool in our Old Testaments, especially, for instance, say in the book of Proverbs, is actually a synonymous comment a term on unbelievers. That's true. It's not just someone uh, who does foolish things. The fool is actually a commentary on the heart of every single person who lives upon the earth. The fool is the status seeker of someone who does not want to have anything to do with God. The fool in his heart says there is no God. Now, I know immediately 
someone might object and say, well, wait a minute. I remember reading in Romans chapter 1, and you can turn there if you want your Bibles, Romans chapter 1. I remember that Romans chapter 1 says that everybody knows God. Everybody knows there is a God. Everybody acknowledges that God exists. Yes, it's true. Look at Romans 1.18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them. Plain to who? Plain to the world. Plain to all creation. Plain to every living and breathing person, every man, woman, and child, they know that God exists. Romans 1 says it, verse 19. How do we know that God exists? How do we know that God is plain to them, to use the language of verse 19? Because, verse 19 says, God has shown it to them. How has He shown it to them? Verse 20, for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. So this goes all the way back to Genesis. This goes all the way back to the Genesis account that everybody knows. It's very plain. The perception is in every single living, breathing person's heart that God is there. Through his invisible attributes, verse 20 says, namely his eternal power and his divine nature. They've been clearly perceived. They've been perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. And verse 21 says, they knew God. So now we've got a practical problem. And maybe even someone might say a contradictory problem because Psalm 14.1 and Psalm 53.1 says, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. So which is it? Is it Psalm 53.1, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. I'm a fool. I don't believe in God. I'm an agnostic. Or is it Romans 1? Is that the truth that it says everybody knows God? It's plain to them. Well, Psalm 14 and Psalm 53 have to be understood in this way. There's no contradiction here. The way you have to understand it is this. It's not as though the fool who is saying such a thing in his heart doesn't really believe that there is an existent God. They are simply, morally speaking, living their lives by forgetting that God exists by refusing to acknowledge in their moral capacity that God exists. That's what Psalm 53 and Psalm 14 are saying. Oh, they know God exists in the sense that they know because Romans 1 says it. But what they do is practically speaking, morally speaking, they don't want to have anything to do with this God. And so what does Romans 1 say they're doing while they're living their life without God's existence in mind? They're suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. You see, the idea of every would-be or so-called atheist is not that they truly believe in their heart that God doesn't exist. The issue is, I don't want a God to exist because I want to do what I want to do. 
I want to push this God that I know who exists out of my life because I don't want to have a Lord over me. I want to be my own Lord. I want to be my own king. I want to be my own ruler. I want to be my own creator. And that's what's going on here. It's not a theological problem. It's a moral problem, right? That's that's what's going on here. It doesn't mean that there are actually true atheists in the world. It means, rather, that there is a moral slash spiritual dilemma whereby men and women live as though God doesn't exist. And we say that because Romans 1 clearly says in a major statement on the depravity of God, God has shown himself clearly and everyone is acknowledging those things even when they don't want to. And what they do is they try to convince themselves every day of their lives that God isn't there because I don't want him to be there. You see, the problem is not in God. The problem is not in creation. The problem is in the heart of man. That's where the problem resides. It's a practical agnosticism when someone says something like this. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. What he's really saying is, I don't really care if God exists. I don't want him to exist. I don't want him to be there. And by the way, the term fool that David uses here is from the Hebrew word Nabal. You remember Nabal in the Old Testament? It's synonymous with both the name and the person. And the verbal form of that word means this, to be senseless. Senseless. With anyone who has religious and moral insensitivity rather than a defective intellect. See, we're not saying that the issue is that some people believe in God because they can get there by their intellectual apprehension of such a God. And others who can't intellectually figure out that God exists, therefore, are either termed atheists or agnostics because they just can't get there intellectually. Well, I'll have you know that there are some people who, as far as brain power, as far as gray matter have the intellectual grasp, and some of them are incredibly intellectual, who say that God doesn't exist. So we're not talking about a commentary, whether it's Psalm 53.1 or Psalm 14.1, that says the fool says in his heart there is no God. The fool in the sense that he doesn't really have the intellectual capacity to say there is a God or to believe there is a God or to be able to reason upwards to affirm there is a God. It's not a fool in the sense that he has intellectual disabilities. It's a fool who says, I don't want God to exist. That's what's going on here. Do you remember Proverbs 1.7? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. You see, it's a moral problem. I'm, I'm a fool, and we all are fools coming out of the womb. We all despise wisdom and knowledge. And this is the commentary. Look at verse 2 of Psalm 53. God looks down from heaven. This is so interesting. It's as though God is stooping. 
He, he's stooping, he's looking down, and he's trying to find, is there anyone who does good? Is there anyone of the children of man? That's just another way of talking about mankind. Is there anyone who understands who seeks after God? And here's the answer back up in verse 1. They are corrupt, doing abominable iniquity. There is none who does good. Verse 3, they have all fallen away. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Boy, that just puts the proverbial last nail in the coffin, right? Now, I know you're like me. Let's move on to the good stuff. Let's, Let's find verses that are cheery. Let's affirm each other. Group hug. (laughs) But you know, maybe it's true to say that most of the time we learn best by first focusing on and understanding and also acknowledging the bad news before we can know how sweet the sweetness is of the good news. Isn't that true? So the depravity of man... And Psalm 53.1 lays out for us the sad but true story of who we are. And then secondly, not just the depravity of man in verses 1 to 3, verses 4 and 5, the determination of God. The determination of God. If verses 1, 2, and 3 give us an anatomy of the fool, an anatomy of the unbeliever, an anatomy of the depravity of man, the corruption of man, God is said here in Psalm 53 in verses 4 and 5 to be determined to do something about it because you have this God who has created men and women and of those men and women on the earth, they're all fools in a sense. They're all unbelievers, the fools of this world, the unbelievers of this world who totally and completely ignore this God, their creator. This God is displeased. This God was not creating man just to shake his fist in God's face. I mean, that would be a really, really bad storyline if that's all there was. But it isn't all there is. This God who the fools of the world don't want to look to is actually searching himself. He's looking down. He didn't just create, and then when mankind turned out the way they did, with Adam's fall and all of us falling in Adam, God said, that's it, that's the end, you're done, I'm going to kill you all in a righteous judgment because of who you are. If that's the end of the story, that is a sad story. So what does God do? He looks. Verse 2 already said it, right? God looks down from heaven. And God is, is still looking. He's still searching. He's still viewing. He's still examining. He, 
he almost appears to be aghast as he looks down from heaven in verse 2. And now in verse 4, it is said about this God and his commentary on this depraved mankind, have those who work evil, that is these totally depraved fools among mankind, have those who work evil no knowledge? Do you not know? Do you not understand? Do you not see the corruption that you're involved with? And remember, as I said, it's not a lack of knowledge in the sense of, well, I didn't have the intellectual capability. Because if they believed that they could try to buy God off by saying, it's actually the way you created me. You see, I was disabled. You see, I didn't have the intellectual capability to respond to you, this grand God. I actually hold you responsible because you didn't create good stuff. No, it's not knowledge in the sense of some intellectual uh, comprehension that went bad, that short-circuited. It's not knowledge in the sense that I didn't have the intellectual capability. It is this It's a culpable ignorance of the depravity of mankind. It's a culpable ignorance. You remember even Paul said in the pastoral epistles, I acted ignorantly in unbelief. I acted ignorantly. And I know, I can hear it. I can hear the cat calls right now. Okay, but if it's ignorance, then you can't be responsible for it. If, if this is true, if I acted ignorantly, if I didn't have the right knowledge, uh, if, I, if I had uh, some kind of knowledge but not the right knowledge to figure out who the real God really is, then it's really not my fault. You know what that is evidence of? That's just evidence of more depravity because we always want to look for the escape hatch. We want to look for the excuse. We want to look for somehow the directions that when I tried to put myself together, it was flawed directions. That's what, that's what mankind is prone to do. That's what we're all prone to do. That's what I'm prone to do. So what we're really talking about here is a culpable ignorance. Culpable in the sense that I did it to myself. God can't be blamed for this. God can't be blamed for the sinfulness of mankind. God can't be blamed for the curse God can't be blamed for Adam's fall. And this is the indictment that we're seeing in verse 4. Have those who work evil no knowledge, who eat up my people, people being a reference to Israel, who eat up my people Israel as they eat bread and do not call upon God? You know what this is saying? This is God furthering the indictment. This is God saying, I'm stooping down, I'm looking, I'm examining, I'm watching, I'm investigating, and I'm trying to determine what is it about you in your human heart that not only does not want to acknowledge the foolishness of such a heart, but you're also treating people, including Israel, like you're just eating your own bread. You're eating them up just like you're eating your daily bread. You're consuming them just like you're consuming a loaf of bread. 
And I'm telling you, you cannot then make a case to me as I, God, am stooping down and watching and listening and investigating and watching for your proper response to my people, Israel. Here's what you're doing. You're making all kinds of excuses. And in fact, here's the biggest that you've made. You don't even care. You don't even care about Israel. You don't care about them. It is as though you're a foolish agnostic who is ravaging God's people just as you greedily consume your own daily bread. You live in such a way that your ignorance of God is so culpably and continuously profane that you refuse to call upon the God who is there and who is not silent. And that's the travesty. And you say, perhaps that's why Psalm 14 and Psalm 53 are so close to each other and has to be stated twice in the Psalter because Israel was always and forever going up against their enemies who were consuming them like bread. And can you imagine if Israel, that people of God whom he had chosen, were constantly running for their lives, constantly in battle, constantly being engaged with the enemy? Wouldn't you be praying something like this? Lord, when's it going to end? When's it going to stop? We are besieged every day. When are you going to help us? Aren't you here to protect us? We need your help. And wouldn't Psalm 53 be one of those psalms that they cry out to? Remember, this is a song. This is a song that they sang. And this is a song that explains by God's own divine commentary what's truly going on. It's as though God is saying in this song, I want you to understand something. The reason they're doing this is because of their depravity. The reason they're doing this is because even though I'm searching, even though I'm stooping, even though I'm investigating, here's what I find. That unless I intervene myself, they'll continue to do this to you for the rest of their lives. They'll always be after you. They'll always try to consume you like bread because of their depravity. This is, this is what the psalm is telling us. It's telling us that the divine commentary on depravity is that it never ends unless God intervenes. This is what's happening. They are the ones who are doing what they do, and only God can investigate and come up with the answer. And do you see in the latter part of verse 4, they do not call upon God. These are terrorizers. Does this remind you of the 6 o'clock news? Terrorizers. My wife and I were sitting watching the news the other night, and if you were to be a cynic, or perhaps even a cynic with a good attitude who's called a realist, 
you would look at the 6 o'clock news, whether you're watching it in Los Angeles or Little Rock, and you would probably say like me and my wife, you know, the first 17 news reports were all negative. It's almost unencouraging to the max to watch the evening news. There's hardly anything that's redeeming of any report. And God is giving a commentary here in Psalm 53 by telling His own people Israel, this is what they're going to do. This is what their heart is like. This is why they try to consume you like bread. And they do not call upon me. Just know this. Just know this about your world. Just know this about the enemy. Know this about how they perceive you. Now, if you're like me, it turns the negative news into positive information and knowledge about God. You say, well, how could this be positive? Here it is. God says, I know what they're doing. I know who they are. I've given you scriptural understanding, revelational knowledge on what to expect. Now, someone says, yeah, but it's not encouraging in that I want it to stop in God's time, at God's hand, with God's power. So what do the believers do? What do do the Israelites do? What do we do as Christians? What what do we do? What do we say? How do we respond? Here's what we do. We come on Sunday nights at 6 o'clock, and after the preacher is done, we pray. We pray. And we acknowledge. The fool does say in his heart, there is no God. He is culpably ignorant. He does want to defy us. He does want to criticize our message. He does want to put us out of our misery. He does want to slay us because he doesn't want our message communicated to his ears by our mouths. Well, we pray and we ask God. We ask God to do something. It's it's Psalm 51 for us. You say, what's Psalm 51? Well, if I'm tempted to indict God himself for not doing something about it when I want him to and on my time frame, then Psalm 51 calls on me to repent. Repent of my attitude. Repent of my demanding of God that he do something relative to my enemies. You see, God knows all of this. God sees it all. He's even stooping. He's even looking down from heaven. He's even questioning, and he knows. Yes, he knows. People could only live this wickedly, Alan Ross says, If they completely refused to acknowledge God, calling on Him would require spiritual understanding, repentance, and faith. But without these, only corruption and destruction follow. So what do we do as Christians? We say we love God. We say we believe God. We say, God help, intervene, comfort us, come alongside us. 
persuade the enemy to go away. Deal with the enemy in whatever time frame and by whatever means you choose to do it. And you know what God says to us? Repent of every attitude that I must do it on your time frame and according to your will, not mine. And you know what he also says? Once you've repented, climb into my lap and beseech me for mercy. Ask me for direction. Come to me for help and hope. Isn't that what's going on? Isn't that what Israel ought to be praying for? How many times do you read these psalms and you read, Lord, come to my aid. Be my refuge. Be my fortress. Be the God that you are and help me. And when we ask, and if it's in his time frame and according to his will and purpose, he wonderfully answers our prayers. And do you know, according to Psalm 53, God does answer. Look at verse 5. Remember our outline point, the determination of God? He is determined to do something, and here's what he does. Verse 5, there they are, uh, these uh, terrorizers in great terror where there is no terror. What does he mean by that? Well, when they don't see terror in their midst, when they don't see a God coming down to judge, when, when they're not frightened at this almighty power about ready to vanquish them, whether it's through God's own divine presence or whether it's through God's people Israel and their mighty armies, well, they tend to, these terrorizers, think nobody's coming. God's not going to answer you, Israelites. God's not going to do anything. It's like what's said by Peter. Where is the promise of his coming? All things remain as they are. Your God isn't going to come through for you. Do you remember that which was hailed at Jesus on the cross, hailed as epithets and threats? If you're really the Son of God, come down from the cross. Be delivered by the one you're trusting. You see, these terrorizers, when there's no terror, they can be pretty bold. They can be pretty bold. And yet, look at the latter part of verse 5. For God scatters the bones of him, the terrorizers, who encamps against you, you Israel. And here's why I think God is using the Israelite army against them. You, speaking of the Israelites, you put them, the terrorizers, to shame, for God has rejected them. And you see, in this particular moment, God is using human beings, the Israelite army, to be successful in battle. Sometimes God does it on his own. It's called divine immediate judgment. You remember Herod in the book of Acts? He was sort of proclaiming his own divinity, as it were. And what happened immediately and instantly to him? The worms ate him and he died. That's that's immediate divine judgment with an awful picture in your mind, right? And sometimes God chooses to use those like the Israelite army to do the Israelite business to fulfill God's plan and purpose. And this is one of those. 
And so what's the determination of God? That at this point in Israel's history, he's promising that he, through you, will vanquish your foe. And so, he's determined to do what? He's determined to judge. The determination of God to judge. And what does he judge? Verses 1, 2, and 3. The depravity of man. That's what he's going to judge. He's going to to judge all depraved wickedness over all the earth. And he might do it with a universal flood. And he might do it with a vanquishing army. But he will certainly do what he does. And when he does it in the last day, he's going to do it through the Lord Jesus Christ, who will come with a flame of fire and who will deal out the just retribution of God to deal with every single wrong by writing it. This is, this is the kind of thing that Psalm 53 is telling us. And then the last and final point, and it's only one verse, let's call it the deliverance of Israel. Verse 6, the deliverance of Israel. Now here's King David's prayerful plea for the deliverance of God's true believing people. Oh, that salvation, that's the word for deliverance. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion, the holy city, when the Lord restores the fortunes of his people. And when he does, let Jacob rejoice, let Israel be glad. I mean, God has promised it. God has promised to bring salvation, deliverance from Zion through Israel for their people. And when he does, we shall see the deliverance of Israel. And do you know when was our deliverance? At the cross. At the cross. When Jesus Christ gave his life for us in sacrificial death, and through his righteous life so that you and I could experience what we call the great exchange. His righteous, holy, perfect life for my wretched, unholy, wicked depravity. That was our deliverance. You say, I'd like it to be full and complete even as far as my sanctification is concerned. That shall come too. But until then, You and I pray, and we cry out to God, and we ask for hope and help. This is what Alan Ross says as we close. The psalmist anticipates that when the Lord does intervene to make all things right, then the people of Israel will rejoice. For a time they are afflicted and appear to be humiliated by the world, but in times to come, They will celebrate victory over the world. Whatever deliverance the psalmist longed for or experienced, the ultimate salvation will come when the Lord comes to judge the world. That will be the great day of deliverance, the final restoration, and the time of endless rejoicing. O Lord Jesus, come quickly. Let's pray together.
If you're here tonight, within the sound of my voice, maybe we should ask ourselves some diagnostic questions as we close in prayer. Do you acknowledge the existence of the Lord? Not merely in admitting that there is a Creator, but that you yourself are willingly accountable to Him. Are you wise, having acknowledged Him as the Lord of your life, and that you love Him with all of your heart and soul and mind and strength? Or are you still foolish and unbelieving to the things of God, forsaking your Creator with a reckless life of sin and wickedness? Oh, my friend, if you would be wise, then seek His deliverance now, right now. There is salvation for fools, but it is only in God Almighty Himself in and through the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Call upon Him now, if you haven't already, crying out to Him in repentance and faith, seeking His forgiveness for your sins. Oh, Heavenly Father, as we pray tonight as men and women, boys and girls, who are in such need of deliverance, may we cry out to the only Savior that you have proffered to the world, the God-man, Jesus Christ. Oh, Heavenly Father, we see the wickedness and the depravity of our world and we acknowledge the truth that we are a part of such depravity. We're to be blamed ourselves for the wickedness and the evil that is in us, regardless of what's happening around us and in and through others. We're, we're a part of the problem, not the solution. We need your help. Come to me, Lord Jesus, Savior and Lord, Master and Redeemer, and save me, not just from a wicked world and not just from a depraved culture. Lord, I ask you to save me from myself. Deliver me from my sins. Cause me to turn from those sins and to place my faith and confidence in no one else but your Son. Oh, may you deliver us, deliver me from a certain deliverance of judgment to a deliverance of your mercy and your grace. We pray these things in the name of the mighty one, your Messiah, Jesus the Christ. Amen.